you do stoke the burst. For instance, I just finished my pilot, which put a lot of energy in that. And it was stoked by sitting down and doing the free write, rough draft. And now it's now that I'm trying to get I'm trying to spark the, the new material. And so now I'm just free writing each morning on stand up. And after three or four days, the first three days, you're like, this is this sucks. This sucks. This sucks. But then it sparks you being more aware of stuff. And now by the fourth or fifth day, I'm like, oh, this is starting to be funny. I just noticed this today, which was funny. And all of a sudden you're in that mindset to where you get the snowball rolling and then you got a bunch of funny things. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. This weekend, we got some classic DC's best showcases at Big Hunt. They will be featuring our old friends, Jamel Johnson and Mati Litwack, both in town from LA. Jamel will be closing out the shows on Friday. Mati will be closing the shows on Saturday. Also this weekend, we've got Greg Fitzsimmons from Crashing on HBO at DC Drafthouse. You can get tickets and information to those shows at the website. Our guest today is Joe Zimmerman. Joe has appeared on The Tonight Show, Conan, and Last Comic Standing. And he has a new album out called Innocence that you can get on Spotify and iTunes. In this episode, Joe talks about his experience with polyamory, OCD, and writing his first pilot. Sex at Dawn about how um, humans, it's basically this, it's trying to convince humans that we're naturally polyamorous. Oh yeah. And evolved for sex with multiple partners. Did you believe it? Were you convinced by the end of it? Um, Sex at Dawn was very convincing. It was very convincing? Yeah, I mean, it was very convincing that humans evolved for a million years. Uh, are we, we're, I have to ask if we're recording. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, cool. I just okay. Just want to make sure. <laughs> Didn't want to waste this. Well, gold. I figured. Yeah, no, it, it sounded. I wasn't going to record this, but then uh, it <laughs> sounded good. I like it. So for a million, however long Homo sapiens have been around, about a million years, depending on who you ask. Um, we humans evolved in tribes of you know thirty to one hundred fifty people. And basically, these would be communities you grew up with, you spent time with your whole life. Right. And so they believed that a baby came from multiple fathers, and the woman basically dictated it. She'd be like, I want to, I like you, you're sweet. I like you, you're handsome. I like you, you're the best hunter. You're the smart guy, you're the nerd. So they thought they were like creating a new strain of weed. Yeah. By combining all the characteristics they like. They found that indigenous uh, communities around the world now believe this. They believe in multiple fathers. Yeah. And the woman chooses who she wants. And she's very, and often the woman, it's not, the whole alpha male thing is completely wrong about how humans evolved. Mm. According to this, according to Sex of Dawn, it's, it's not the alpha male that gets all the women. It's the woman. S- chooses to be with a lot of guys and and then and then the kid thinks it has then they the, all the guys think they're the father and it, it's this healthy childhood where the kid has lots of parents so the thing that sounds strange to me i didn't see this documentary obviously this is sex at dawn the book oh this is a book okay yeah um is what about pair bonding well first but i want to say it, it convinced me that polyamory is natural but in practice i find it not for me. Right. So this isn't me trying to convince you to be sure. polyamorous because it didn't work. It doesn't work for me. But the book is very convincing. Did you try it? Well, yeah, the girl I started dating on the fifth date told me she's polyamorous. That's a true story that I talk about on stage. Okay. Uh, on the fifth date, um, it's told me she lives with her companion. Oh, you're going to be the extra. I, I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah, she had but you're a, not the one who lives with her. She had a primary. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm like, well, at that point, I'm just dating. I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm just dating. I'm not desperate for a primary partner. So right. I could test this out. And I read Sex at Dawn, and it was really interesting. Did she recommend that? Uh, I think she mentioned 
She, it's not like she was like pushing. Bring it. It's funny if she bring a copy of it to each it's state like that she, she was, It's not like she was pushing it on me, but I think it came up as a book, and I read it. And so I w- That book was so convincing. I was like, oh man, I see the light. Yeah. Because it's just so much more natural this way. Uh huh. And honest. Um, there's all the, like, and and basically it 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 teaches you that there's a, been a false narrative. Uh huh with how bonding works this false narrative that monogamy is natural is the false narrative yeah that's that's uh interesting all i mean it's been a long time i used to read books about science and uh life and things like that and then i stopped for a long time but uh the impression that i got is that certain animals have pair bonding where they for the course of raising a child stay together and raise it together. Yeah. And that happens. There's a lot of different types of animals that do that. And humans tend to do that also. And, and, and kind of what this book points out is the, the species that do mono are monogamous uh-huh. tend to be very dumb species. Interesting. And they found that the four, there's four species in the whole animal kingdom that have sex for pleasure. It's humans, chimps, bonobos, which are the two closest relatives right. of humans, uh-huh. and dolphins, which is nothing to do with humans. But those are four species that are the most social. Uh-huh. Those are the four most social species and the only species that have sex for pleasure. And they think it evolved for cooperation within the group mm-hmm. more than, much more than having babies. Mm-hmm. Because... Basically, sex for pleasure means they're not having sex for babies. They're having sex for the bonding with the other person. Right. Um, whereas gorillas just have sex, you know, when they're ovulating specifically to have a baby. Okay. And that's the alpha male thing. Like their sex means baby. I see. But for human humans, chimps, bonobos, and dolphins, the sex is for fun and often not leading to babies. I heard about that dolphin sex not being very fun. Oh well, I haven't I haven't looked into the specifics of dolphin sex. Oh, it's uh it's forced. But in uh gang style. So but so here's why it's a false narrative. Like even March of the Penguins, all the churches were like, Look, monogamy. Right. This is this is love in nature. Right, right. They show how the penguins going through all that trouble to raise a baby together. What they don't tell you in March of the Penguins it's is for one year. It's one year. Yeah. And then they switch partners immediately. Right. So through the course of a penguin's life, they have 25 partners. Right. And then, and then that's not mentioned at all. Yeah, right. And in, in the ape world, in apes and chimps of, of 300, 400 species, the only one found to be monogamous is the gibbon. Okay. Which is the dumbest, one of the dumbest, <laughs> most boring ones. So humans, so humans are trying to say, oh, monogamy is natural. We're like the gi- we're like the gibbon. Uh huh. But the gibbon is not closely related to us at all, and they're just dumb. Mm-hmm. They're just boring and dumb, and they're not social. Humans are so social. It, it adds up that humans did not evolve for natural. But I, again, I'm not trying to sell this to anybody because I tried it and did not like non-monogamy. So I'm a I don't know what I am, but I'm definitely not poly- polyamorous. <laughs> not so close. I so I can't I can't really f- dispute it anymore because I'm just remembering things that I read ten years ago. Yeah. Um, you seem like somebody who might might dabble in the polyamory. Why is that? You just I don't know. You got that cool new wave vibe. Oh yeah. Well, I'm not into it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've never tried it or considered it, um, but I. I have met several people who have tried polyamory and they uh, were all guys and they, it was the woman's idea every time. The woman's idea. And yeah. every time it, uh, they did not like it in the end. They, they went along with it for a while and then eventually just couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah, I think there's a false um, stereotype that people are saying, oh, it's just for guys that want to have a lot of sex. And I think that's completely false. I think it's more natural from what, for the women I've met. This is a stereotype on my part, but I think it's actually more natural for women who are more social. I think women are a little more social. 
creatures. Yeah. And the woman I dated just is very social and enjoyed hanging out with different people. And I'm like, I enjoy my alone time a lot more. Well, I do. I enjoy being social and hanging out with a lot of different people. And it's fun to have sex with lots of different people. But, you know, there is another part of, you know, relationships, which is, is not really about sex and about new experiences. It becomes about, you know, getting closer to that person. Yeah, you get and, attached. And then, and then you have like a life, you know, with that individual. Yeah. And, and then thinking about having sex with other people becomes kind of totally, unattractive. Totally. Once I, the moment I get attached, I have no interest in this whole, that whole world. It's like, I, what are you doing once we're attached? Why are you still interested in that? That's right. crazy to me. But that's what they're saying. But it, it also feels like, doesn't it feel like very, like a very natural drop off? Like you're, you know, you're dating people, you're out, you're, you're excited about all the different types of people. It's, it's very, it's stimulating. And then as soon as you get into it, all the other stuff naturally drops away. It's like, you don't have to force yourself. You don't have to like constantly stop yourself from texting girls. Cause you're, you've lost interest in the other girls. Yeah. It, to true. me, it feels natural. Well, so the other convincing argument, and again, I'm, I don't know why I'm trying to sell this to you because it didn't work. It ultimately, <laughs> it ultimately did not work for sell to sell to me. But the other thing that almost sold me was all the, all the, you know, all the, you look at all the divorce, the divorce rate uh-huh. and you look at, um, you know, all the cheating in marriage, you know, in long-term marriages mm-hmm. and people just accept that's a thing. And they, ex- and they also accept that if you catch your spouse cheating, that you should just, you know, you should basically get divorced. Mm-hmm. And basically this book is like, no, it's natural for the chemicals to drop off and you you become less sexual with your you know partner of 20 years mm-hmm. and then it's actually unhealthy to just not have sex and it's just natural to meet new people so why are we encouraging this divorce culture when we could be just letting you stay with somebody you love while dating new people and that's this whole other concept yeah and i think that the traditional argument against that would be that the pair bonding is for the purpose of raising the child. So it only lasts for the amount of time yeah. that you're raising children. So after 20 years, it's usefulness is over because you've raised the child that, and the idea is that if you have, if you get a partner that is going to be committed to raising the child, then they will, the child will be better off. The genes will spread further because you've raised more successful children by staying together. And then once they're raised, then what you do with your life is no longer going to affect genes anymore because they're already off and they're as successful as they're going to be. And it doesn't matter whether you're together in your fifties or not for your child, your child will will already is going to be, is going to thrive or not already. So totally. So this non-traditional narrative is saying it's okay to stay together you don't, you don't have to have this horrible divorce. You can stay together and communicate about these new people you're dating. And it's this whole other world where that's possible. I feel it feels uh, unhealthy to me. It feels like you should just get divorced and then you should just go live your life and not continue right. to so, come But either way, you're, you're kind of agreeing that long, like forever monogamy is unnatural. Yeah. So either way, we're kind of agreeing on but that. But I also think, I also think, you know, the, I think the, your natural instincts might start to like wear off at that, at that point. But also at that point, you know, you're 50 or 60 and then, you know, then you're just, you're old. It's like, you might as well just stay together and have a, have somebody to hang out with. Yeah. Cause you're not meeting tons of new people at that point. And how many new people are single and uh, really looking good to you <laughs> at, at that point, like that point, then you just got, then you just need a buddy. You just need a buddy to hang out with. That's true. In the ancient, you know, in the evolu- in the old tribes, you know, humans probably lived till they're about 45, 50. Right. So it's not like they were dating. A, it's not like they were dating a lot past 45 yeah. anyway. Yeah. I look at my wife's parents and they seem like buddies, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's nice. That would be nice to yeah. have that. That's like what I would like. Totally. Because I don't want to have to think about dating when I'm 50. I agree. And or that's, now for that that's matter. That's one of the reasons 
polyamorous. I, I ultimately have no interest in it. Is it's all the thinking about dating. Yeah, it's I'm exhausting, like, oh, I actually man. don't like all the dating. Plus, imagine <laughs> all the, the the mixed up feelings that you're gonna have. Emotions, yeah. Through your own actions and your own like kind of guilt, maybe, mm-hmm. and then jealousy. It just uh, seems yeah. like lots of bad stuff. Yeah, but uh, some people, it seems to be for them. Some people don't. Some people, I think it's the people I've noticed it's for them are just super, super social. Yeah. They just, they're just always with men or women. They're just always want to be with people, always communicating, highly communicative, always want to be with people. It's not so much that they need more sex. It's more that they love (laughs) to love communicating. All of the situations I only know of four, maybe four or five people who've kind of been through this and all of the situations were pretty much the woman was not in love with the dude. The dude was in love with the woman. Oh, and, but the woman wanted the stability and attention and everything at home, but she wasn't like actually in love with that person. So then what she, she still needed to go out and like experience love and like that excitement. And so it just trapped the dude basically. Interesting. Every time or just made him feel like force himself to do it and like go through with it and try to make it work. And then eventually they all couldn't make it work and then they all had to break up. Yeah. I don't know the detail. The one I dated, I don't know the details of what her, her companion situation was. Yeah. That's anyway. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I stopped that. I, I'm glad I I'm glad I tried it because now I know, oh yeah, for sure that doesn't work for me. And it's nice to know that. I think that if you comics in general, as male comics, they're they tend to get into relationships real hard. <laughs> from my yeah. from what I see, it seems like they get into relationships, they stay in relationships. I mean, there's obviously a handful of guys that are like try to like have sex with tons of people, but for, For the, the most, most part, part, we're very focused, yeah. one track mind. Yeah. Um, my, I think uh, I forget who it was, but I have a f- comedian friend who's been around for a long time who has a theory that comedians have a tendency to be OCD. Yeah. Which would mean, you know, kind of OCD tendencies among a lot of the best comedians. And I'm not sure what the correlation is, but it has to do with, you know, getting words perfectly right. Yeah. Um, having everything be just so being hyper focused on a thing. And I think that's how we are. I think that's how comedians tend to be toward relationships as well. Yeah. One yeah. Hyper focused. Definitely. definitely. One track mind. Do you feel like you have OCD stuff? I didn't really think about it until he told me that. Yeah. Cause, and then I thought about all the comedians that definitely do have OCD and I was like, I've never even thought about the, that I might have OCD, but I do have these like pretty intense morning rituals that if I don't do these certain things, I feel crappy the rest of the day. Yeah. And it's just causes anxiety. So I do have these vague rituals that if I don't do, I'm flustered. Are they just normal things? Yeah. I mean, It'd be like free. It'd be like free writing in the morning. Okay. Um, uh, free writing in the morning, exercise, things that you would feel yeah. like you feel good. But if I have to get right into the day, um, like if we opened the morning with this podcast, I would be like, un almost unhinged. Yeah. I'd be like, I didn't do my free writing or my exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't be able to focus. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's OCD, but it's. It's just like maybe just dips into the spectrum. Yeah. I wonder about that too. Cause people have made comments to me about like having OCD tendencies at times. And it seems, and I've heard a lot of people talk about it in different ways and it seems like there's all different types of OCD stuff. Yeah. And it's like, and like you said, like, yeah, it's like a spectrum, like, like everything. Uh, so you, you being just, into comedy and running shows, I bet you have something. Yeah, I mean, I I was just thinking about how, like, one of the things I love about comedy is, like, the repeated nature of it. Yeah. I love how you just do the same thing over and over again, and you just try to make it better and better. <laughs> and, like, this, the shows are the same way as 
doing sets, you know, you do a show, it goes, okay. You think like, well, how can I make the show better? And then then you just do it over and over again and you get to just keep incrementally improving. And the things that stress me out really bad are like one time events, like, like doing a festival once a year because it's just one thing and you just have one shot at it and you prepare for months and months for it. And it's, there's so many moving parts and it's just, I just think about it for months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's funny. I th- stand-up actually might have made me more OCD because yeah. before stand-up, everything you do, you do it once. You take a test once. You, yeah, you move on. You write a paper once, you move on. I, I played a few little tiny music, you know, Battle of the Bands. You play the concert once, playing these songs for the first time, move on. Write an article for the student paper, move on. And then stand-up, it's like, no, you just have to keep getting that better and better and better until it's a final product and you're super certain of it. And then maybe you can put it on an album or a special. Um, and what about the part where you hate it that yeah. you can't bring yourself to say the words anymore? Well, then that's the sign that you should put it on an album yeah. or whatever or retire it. But uh, yeah, that that actually made me more. Now, when I do things where it's you have a one time shot at it, I'm like, oh, well, I haven't had a chance to perfect it. Right. Whereas before, it's like, that's normal. Right. Now I'm like, but I, I don't, I have no preparation. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it really, it won't, the one-time things stress me out, and I try, I try to, like, stay away from them, and pretty much everything I do ends up being patterns and repetitions over and over again. So I definitely, and I get obsessed with numbers, I stare at numbers. It's, uh, I, Nancy Pelosi, uh, like, pretty recently just made this offhanded comment. She's like, sometimes I like to watch basketball and I just look at the numbers go up. <laughs> and it's like, that's such a, a weird comment. Nancy Pelosi said that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so amazing. Yeah, it's such a strange thing to say and it's like a weird way to think about basketball. But I, I love watching basketball for that same reason too. I'm, <laughs> to watch the, what if that's the reason we actually like sports? It's just, just watching numbers go up? That's the way I, I, look, at, I look at everything that way. Do you think that do you think that your anxiety is part of your comedy? Um it didn't used to be, but now I find it to be a good way, good release. Okay. Like if I'm anxious about something, I can write jokes about it and then I feel less anxious about it to express that on stage. So I find it to be a good release. Do you think that it like uh serves your comedy well? Do you think it like gives you kind of like a comedy with a little bit more like personal depth to it? Uh, I do. Um, I do. I think it makes it feel very personal. Um, I think that it's funny. If you're anxious about a topic, it can lead to a lot of comedy. Yeah. Um, the only downside I've noticed is if the, if an audience member is like, Oh man, you got a lot of anxiety and you're like, well, I mean, I'm getting it out. Right. It's not like this is a tragic problem I have. Oh, I'm, like I'm, they'll I'm ex- start to become too sympathetic? Yeah. So you don't, I don't want them to be too sympathetic, but for the most part, they seem to get it. And I feel like that, that's a thing that you can balance by s- just by making certain comments at certain points or doing jokes in a certain order. Yeah, and yeah, I think... Um, I like to be silly. First and foremost, I like to be silly. So hopefully there's a balance where I get some anxiety out and then I'm silly about it. Were you so cuz you do talk about you talk about some personal things on stage like anxiety and and like the OCD um Yeah, like I just started taking Lexapro a few months ago but got off it cuz of the side effects. Another that's another thing that um people have been like have you ever considered taking Lexapro? And I'm like, well, I know about 10 comedians who've taken Lexapro and every single one of them stopped taking it within the first month because they hated it so much yeah. uh, based on what happened to their dick. It's weird that the doctor's like, here, Lexapro, that'll work. And then everybody's penis stops working. And you're like, why did you subscribe that to me? <laughs> They're like, well, I thought maybe... Maybe this would be better. They're like, maybe we, th- we thought you'd be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, it turns out to young dudes are not okay with uh, their dick not working. Yeah. But that was enough. Even just every person saying the exact same thing about it is enough for me to not even consider it. 
Yeah. It's I'm like, a, I'll work it out. The crazy thing was my mood did feel great. Yeah. So you're, t- it is tempting. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, maybe at some point, is there a point when you, when you don't care if your dick works? I don't know. I think if you just really, if you just plan on, if you just are single and you're like, I'm going to be single for a few months, mm-hmm. maybe you could do it for a few months. Yeah. If you really um, want to avoid women for a few months, I guess that yeah, you could yeah go through a personal growth experience. Yeah, you could be like a like a, a happy monk. Do you? I always do that. I bet monks are on Lexapro. <laughs> oh, is that how they do it? <laughs> That's how they're so relaxed. Yeah, that was it. And celibate. <laughs> yeah, you could have done it the whole time, not with no work. I always, whenever I get out of a relationship, I end up, I'll go through. I'm like, I'm not. I'm not hooking up with anyone. I'm not dating anyone. Same. This is all personal growth. Same as Then I just read a bunch of books and I meditate. Uh-huh. And then uh, and then I'll just get obsessed with somebody. Yeah, those are, those are the best times in my life. The times where I'm like, oh, I don't want to date at all. I just want to focus on myself. And then immediately, I know it's, it's, it's cliche, but immediately you have like, it just feels like the most gorgeous women right, of wanting course. to wanting to be all over you and you're like what i i wasn't i'm just i'm trying to avoid women <laughs> that's how that's the trick <laughs> that's the trick but you can't you can't trick yourself into not wanting women you have to you have to actually not yeah you have to believe it <laughs> you have to make yourself believe it you actually have to actually want to avoid women for a while because it's uh it comes out it comes across the truth comes across like whether no matter how you try to act yeah people can they can sense what you really want yeah and if you really want to just be by yourself, well, then there's some there's some good looking women that are ready to interrupt that. Yes, it is every time. And if you really, really want a girlfriend, um, you're going to chase some women off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, it, it's impossible. It's like I was talking to my friend the other day and she was like, she's like, I'm really only interested in someone who's interested in getting married. <laughs> and it's like, that's heavy. That's a heavy way to start a date. Yeah, that's a lot to put on a person. People, oh, my friend, um, my friend was asked, a woman was like, she was like, you got to play a cool, she's like, you got to play a cool to a certain extent on early dates. You know, you don't want to chase them off. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah, but a secure person communicates what they want in a relationship. That way, um, they're not getting something, getting with somebody that they wouldn't work for them. If they're like playing it too cool and the other person's like, oh, cool, they don't need much. So you want to show your needs. But at the same time, if you say, oh, I'm looking for marriage, like it's like, well, you don't even know me yet. Right. What? Like, I don't feel that complimented that you're looking for me for marriage and we've only had two dates. Like, maybe you should get to know me before you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's, it's not even before. It's not even after two dates. It's before the first date. It's like you have to be prepared to get married in the near future. Yeah, it's and like, if you're not, then just get lost. Yeah, that's just chasing off perfectly good people. Perfectly good dudes that you could manipulate into marrying you <laughs> if you tried hard enough. And now you're going to have to settle for a dude that's willing to just come out and say it off the, off the bat. Well, it's almost like, I mean, I don't know this person at all. There's probably plenty of great people who... Are like I want to get married and I'm gonna communicate this up front, but it it raises a red flag to me, of the red flag isn't even oh marriage. The red flag is why does this person only want that so specifically? Yeah, that's the red flag for me. Well, I think I think it's tough for women, you know. And how and like what kind of timeline is this person? It sounds like she's on a timeline. Yeah, I think so. I think she is on the timeline. It's like the uh, approaching a certain time timeline. Exactly. Yeah, which is yeah, which uh, it it doesn't allow for a natural getting to know somebody. Right. It's tough. Do you have like uh, an overarching life philosophy that you try to stick to? Um. I would say I do. I believe I, I'm not sure I've I'm not sure I've put it in words, but there's a few things. I definitely am hardcore honor code. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which means, you know, don't I don't I don't lie or um cheat or steal. Um definitely always on very honest. How if did I, you how did you get to that point? Part of it was going to <laughs> Davidson College. They're very about the honor code. They give you the test to take home 
with you and trust you not to Google the answers. Um, they're just very about the honor code there. And then the other part of it was like some negative consequences for me, maybe as a teenager. Oh yeah. You know, telling a lie or, 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 you know, McDonald's gives you back $20 bill instead of a $10 bill and you keep it mm-hmm. and then get into a car accident immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, it's partly because I want to be good and partly because I don't want bad karma. Yeah. I just believe yeah. I, I vaguely believe in good karma. Yeah. You're, that's just like OCD. That's a little OCD. Oh, that's a good point. I have OCD toward honesty. I, when I was in uh, high school, I took like an architecture program that was like three years long. Mm-hmm. And our teacher was like, you all should read the fountainhead uh, by Ayn Rand. Are you familiar with that book at all? I mean, I've, yeah, I've heard a lot about it. So, so I read that book uh-huh. and, uh, and I, in that book, she is, I'm trying to think she, in that book, she's trying to make one of the characters is supposed to be like the ideal man, the the main character. So everything that, that he does is, would, is what a perfect man would do. And so of course he doesn't lie or cheat or steal or anything like that. Yeah. And that just reading that I, it made me think like oh that does make sense and like if i do want to be if i want to be the ideal man then i've got to excel in all of these areas and even though ayn rand is not a good writer and oh really no is like that true yeah like uh well, why is she so famous just because she had because, interesting ideas yeah she and her ideas aren't even that interesting <laughs> Maybe they were interesting at the time. They're basically, she's basically a libertarian, uh-huh. but she calls it, I forget what it's called. She calls it something else, but it's libertarianism. Mm-hmm. She was, grew up in the Soviet Union. So she's just reacting to communism, okay. which is, which is fine. And libertarianism, whatever. It's not like the worst thing in the world. But, um, but what she's doing in her novels is she's trying to put forth an ideology And so it's really propaganda as opposed to like art. Mm -hmm. It's not art. It's, it's to get, it's really, it just hammers home these messages of like, this is how men act. This is how women act. This is how society should be. Um, And then Atlas Shrugged is the book that comes after that, which is, that's like her masterpiece. masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, like basically in that all the good people, they they leave society and they go start their own society so they don't have to give money to poor people or like deal with dumb people. All the good people? Yeah, like all of the talented um, they start their entrepreneurs. Own. They they go live in the mountains uh-huh. and they go start their own society because all of, all the people who are made weak by socialism, uh, they're they're beyond so, helping. So, the good people in the mountains. What happens? I needed to know. They. I don't remember what happens at the end of that book. They go and they live in the mountains and then they have like technology that makes it see so that it just looks like a mountain. So you can't see them. (laughs) So no, so nobody knows that they're living there, Uh but I don't remember what happens at the end of it. I just remember that they all go and live in the mountains. Do the poor people just get poorer? Yeah. I think, I think the idea is, yeah, that that's the, that becomes the successful society and everything else just kind of withers away. Does, is the lesson to that the good people should all go live together? The lesson is her thing is that people need to take care of themselves and the government shouldn't be taking care of it. And no one should be expected to take care of anyone else. So if I'm successful, you shouldn't take any way, any of my money or oh, wow. she sounds like, um, she sounds like just a, like a hardcore hardline Republican. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I mean, that's what libertarianism libertarianism is. Oh, okay. Uh, so anyway, that's that's what. So anyway, so I completely disagree with all of her political philosophies and everything. But what you know, I read that when I was like eighteen, nineteen, and it did shape how I conduct myself, and it had a positive impact on me behavior wise and what I was trying to do, which is ironic, I think Mm -hmm. because it's generally they're not great messages in that book. Interesting. In those books. But yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to Google 
what the end result of that book is. I just want to know the end. I just want to know the spoiler. Yeah. I don't, I don't wanna, even want to read the whole thing. I, given that, like the way that she writes, I'm sure it's a happy ending for the successful people and a, and a sad ending for the poor people. I was dreaming up a, one of my um, fictional ideas that reminded me of one of my comedy fictional ideas, which is kind of like a comedy meets black mirror okay. where, um, you know, a, black mirror is kind of funny like in an, itself. Yeah. Like an Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos type guy in 20 years um, creates this special place for all the, you know, people who have passed a certain number of followers on Instagram. Okay. It's for the, you know, for the influencers to go to and, and really influence, have all the influencer advantages and influence even more. Yeah. And then if you're not past, you know, 50,000 followers by age 25, you know, you, you go work in the labor camps (laughs) and you go watch all that paid promotes and you support this, you support this influencer society. So it's the rich and the poor, but by follower. I like that. That's a good Um, idea. So it's kind of like a black mirror comedy idea. And, uh, I want to Google what happens with Ayn Rand because I want to make sure I don't do the exact same twist. Yeah. Yeah. There's no twists in Ayn Rand. That's the, that's the fun part. Yeah. So are you, um, are you working on creating some stuff that, uh, you're going to try to make or sell? I just finished. Yeah. I just finished a comedy pilot, um, and just sent out my, it's my first ever script. And I just sent out, uh, the script to a, you know a VIP, an important person who will see if this person likes it, and if they like it, they'll send it to a development production company, and if they don't like it, they won't. Or maybe they'll be in the middle and they'll just give me notes on it on how to improve it. How long did it take you to do? It felt really long to me, but if you were a friend of mine. You'd be like, oh, that didn't take that long. Yeah. But for me, it felt forever because I did a rough draft, which is just like you spew it out on paper, mm-hmm. which took a week. And how long was, did it ultimately end up being? So the rough draft took, uh, oh, thir- it ended up being 30 pages. Okay. 30 minute pilot. So the rough draft just took me a week. I was like, oh my goodness, I can write pilots. And then I sent it to a friend and they were like, this is terrible. <laughs> really? I mean, no, they were nice about it, but they were like, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. In a nice way. And so then I completely rewrote all the characters and then I did a treatment, which is an out. I did the outline, the characters, the, I did a breakdown of all the two seasons of episodes. And so then I completely rewrote everything. And and then I went in and did a second draft of the pilot. And, you know, from, so now from, from the rough draft to now, when I think it's actually good was about six months. And you're, how do you feel about it now? You feel good about it now? Yeah, now I think it's a, actually a, d- a good pilot. And I think, you know, with one more revision, it will it would be perfectly suitable for, you know. Did you read books or, like, take a class or anything to learn how to do that? Uh, I did. I, I, mostly, I mostly read about 10 other. Uh, well, that's a, I would say I read about seven other pilot scripts. I read Frasier. Mad. Oh, you read you read famous ones. Well, they say Fra- I've heard multiple TV people say Frasier was the best written pilot at, in the history of TV. <laughs> okay, and so I'm like, all right, what's going on with Frasier? Yeah, and to me, I would have never said, oh, this is the best pilot ever. What I noted by it was how shockingly simple it was, and how mm. yes, each character is introduced in a very simple, straightforward way. And the whole show, yes, is set up. It's not like the show blows your mind. It's right. just like, oh, it's so simple. And we know all the characters and why they exist in this way now. Yeah. So it's the perfect pilot just in that it just sets everything up. But, you know, in a setup, usually usually a setup's never going to blow you away. And, and, and that is the case. Sure. It doesn't blow you away. Do you feel comfortable talking about what your pilot's about? Um I, I can give you the topic. It's about, it's, it's about, it's also about the social media world and, and your life, uh, uh, and your life on social media versus the reality of your life off social media. So it's, I, it's very present with the times. And do you feel, uh, are you feeling pressure and like, uh, 
anxiety from social media? Yeah, I, um, well, I mean, being a comedian who tours the country that you, at first you start headlining and you just feel good to be headlining and doing what you love and being able to get your material out there into the world and be creative. And then a few years go by and, you know, your, your agents like, um, stop, start, you know, your agents, like, you know, agent and managers are like, you know, ticket sales. You keep hearing ticket sales. Mm-hmm. And at first you're like, I'm not going to keep hearing these words in these meetings. These ticket sales. And keep at getting first you're like, you see all these comics be obsessed with their ticket sales. I'm like, I'm never going to let myself be like that. Mm. This just seems sad. But then the more you, you know, you more, the longer you're a headliner, the more you're like, well, shit, I, yeah, I do got to sell tickets. And, um, so I found that posting funny, silly videos to Instagram the last few months has, um, has got some traction. Oh yeah. It is working for you. It gets some traction. Um, and then I, which is, which is hopeful. Mm -hmm. That made me feel hopeful getting all these new hashtag fans. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but on the downside is like, I can't stare at Instagram all day. Yeah. So I'm, I think I found a balance where I just post what I'm gonna do is just post a stand-up clip on Monday and then a silly video on Thursday and totally limit myself to those two, two clips. Yeah. Cause that's all you need. That's all I need. And then I'm just going to take the rest of the week doing things I like. I think, I mean, that's exactly how I always go about things is try to just make it a schedule and a pattern yeah. so that I don't, because it exhausts me if I have to think, What's the plan for this week? Yeah. How many, you know, how many posts, what's the post going to be? If you just know that you need to find something for Monday and then yeah. come up with something by Thursday. Exactly. Cause if you don't limit yourself, then it's, it's never ending infinite. Yeah. And I found that I would always burn out on Twitter. Cause I'm like, it's just always, 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 I can't do Twitter. I, I was, so I just completely got rid of Twitter and then I came back to it a few months ago and I've just been doing tweets Monday to Friday just at noon yeah (laughs) one tweet at noon and I'm like oh this is manageable now I'm on Twitter and I'm not overwhelmed by how much much time reading Twitter or just trying to write to write stuff for Twitter it'd be like a year it'd be like I'd get into Twitter but okay I'm gonna I'm gonna really enjoy Twitter I'm gonna put out a lot of jokes Uh but then the more you put out and the more traction you get the more it feels like you just need to do more Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you get swept away in an infinite amount of Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And so then I would just basically delete it after three weeks. I'm like, fuck that. Yeah. I hate this. So if I limit myself to just at noon, then it means I'm on Twitter, but I'm also not hating it. Right. Yeah. I get sucked into Twitter just reading it. Oh, yeah. I don't really do, I, I don't I really st- do that. I stopped posting on Twitter a long time ago, but I just... But I follow like uh, all kinds of people, like tons of journalists. Oh, like, see, I, I never, I never, I never found it that interesting to read Twitter. <laughs> I find it interesting because you know, if you follow really smart people that are like following the news, uh-huh. um, or they're following like finance or economics, you can cut through so much stuff. Like, uh, and they're ahead of the news. Like the news, it happens, and then they'll tell you what it means. And then you already, you already know what it means. And like, then the next day they're just talking about the next piece of it. And it's like, we already know what this is. We already know what it's going to be. But it, there's just, there are so many people. And then um, you always are finding like new funny people or new interesting people. Mm -hmm. And then that just makes your feed So you get swept away and being interested in other people. Yeah, definitely. Totally. Uh, Yeah. I've gotten, uh, I've like really lost interest in myself over the past <laughs> few years and uh, not really been churning out a lot of well, it's content. True. We, it's true. We never, we never get to be away from ourselves, right? As a comic. Yeah, you and, can't. And, and the older, the older you get, the more you're like, man, I never, I'm just always with me. And you always have to be thinking about what can be funny. What can be a joke? Yeah. Do you find that? Are you always kind of, uh, no, I, I go through intense um, month-long 
like three, four, five weeks where I focus, where everything I'm thinking about is funny. Mm-hmm. And then I'll turn, so in, and in that month, I'll, in that sort of obsessive month, I'll turn over yeah. a bunch of new material. And then I'll completely tap out and think about, you know, only, you know, I'll only think about girls for a month. Yeah, and yeah. The next month, I'll only think about the pilot. And I find that I have this one track mind, and I, but that goes through cycles throughout the year. Yeah, yeah, I definitely relate to that. And I think that most comics, uh, they have their creativity come in, in bursts, yeah. you know. It's just kind of... But you, I will say you do um, stoke the burst. For instance, I just finished my pilot, which put a lot of energy in that. And it was stoked by sitting down and doing the free write. Right. Rough draft. And now, it's, now that I'm trying to, get, I'm trying to spark the, the new material... So now I'm instead of writing. So now I'm just free writing each morning on stand up, and I, I, and it's and after three or four days, the first three days you're like, this is this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, but then it sparks you being more aware of stuff, and now by the fourth or fifth day, I'm like, oh, this is starting to be funny. Yeah. I just noticed this today, which was funny, um, and all of a sudden you're in that mindset to where you get the snowball rolling, and then you got a bunch of funny things. Do you feel so you you put an album out pretty recently? Innocence. And has it been stressful trying to turn that material over? Uh well actually when I put out the album the first 3 months afterwards I went through this really fulfilling creative phase <laughs> of turning over, you know. I was like, "Oh, I get to I get the whole I get the whole the whole hours wide open." Right. And all of a sudden I turned over 20, 30 new minutes of material in, in three months. And I was like, wow, I could just, when, when everything's open, when the canvas is open, mm-hmm. you can just paint. Yeah. So I did that 20, 30 fresh and then switched into, um, again, you kind of burn out on thinking about comedy. Mm-hmm. So then I switched into the pilot at that point, And now I, I still, and now like nine months later, I still just have that new 30. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well now I'm bored with my new 30 because I've been doing it for nine months. Yeah. But if you can get another, get another new 20, then you, then the, the boredom will like subside a little bit. So now I'm in the phase of like trying to spark that that next 20 minutes. Would you, are you doing things like differently now than you used to? Like, do you, if you could go back, would you would you have gone about things in a different way? Um, yeah, for sure. I let's see. I, I will. Yeah, I, I would say for me, I started off in North Carolina, and I did a lot of. I, I think I did a lot more blue collar gigs starting out. Okay. Then, and you know, starting out's all about finding your voice. But I think any any idiot could have told you that I wasn't going to be right for rednecks. Right. And including myself. So I'm like, and, but I learned, I'm like, Oh, I I do like blue collar people. And I learned how to perform comedy for blue collar people. It's just like, they don't like me that much. Yeah. So I, I, I think I come across like looking like a professor on stage or something. Yeah, you you do seem like an intellectual. So, um, so I would have just said, for me, I would have. I was under the philo- I was under the philosophy of, oh, you get good and then you move to New York City. That's what I was told. Yeah. But the people I see, my favorite comedians, for the most part, I would say, I would say four out of five of my favorite comedians. You know, 90 out of 100 of my favorite comedians just started in New York or L.A. and they developed their voice. I think the voice, I think your voice develops or, you know, D.C. in a, in a, in a big market. D.C. Mm-hmm. is a big market. I think your voice. There's a lot of people came out of Chicago to Chicago. If you're in a big city, it allows your voice to develop uh, very authentically. Because uh. you get all these different t- types of crowds. That's interesting. And you get and a city crowd. What I guess what I'm saying is a city crowd is a very diverse crowd. Yeah. Um, 
So I think your voice develops more authentically. There's more shows to do, mm-hmm. more opportunities to do shows. Um, so the thing I would have changed would have been to move to start out in a big market where you can... Where in North Carolina were you? And, and, I, and I'm not... Uh, I'm not... I started in Charlotte and because uh, I finished college at Davidson mm-hmm. and then I moved to Asheville. And so the only thing that w- was negative really was just that there was starting out, there was one open mic every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so my first year, I was like, oh, I'm working hard doing one open mic every two weeks. I, that yeah. felt like hard work yeah. to me. You're doing all of them. You're doing every open doing mic. every open mic. <laughs> yeah. So my first year when I was the most obsessive and passionate about comedy, I was just getting up once every two weeks, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and now Charlotte and, and Asheville have a ton more stage time. Yeah. So that's not an issue now. But I guess what I'm saying is I would go somewhere where there's a ton of comics, ton of stage time, if you're obsessed with it, so that you can actually, you know, sink your teeth into it. Right. You're... You're from West Virginia originally, right? Morgantown? Grew, grew up in Morgantown. And that seems like a very blue-collar place. Well, it's, it is and it isn't because it's also got the college. Okay. So oh, that's, a, that's right. So I have a love for the... I do have a love for the blue-collar and a love for the intellectual because I grew up half and half. Okay. I grew up I with see. my blue-collar friends and I grew up with my um, university friends. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. So I do, I do think I dip into both worlds pretty, pretty naturally. I'm low key, so when I have a hot crowd, it's easy to get it, keep it rolling. I mean, particularly easy, I think, for me, because I'm low key. And when it's a tight crowd, I, I have learned to switch it up a little. Yeah. And, and get them fine, but I'm more myself when I can be low key with the hot crowd. Do you think that, like, do you think that... It, you should be trying to develop more of those skills in order to be able to generate more of a reaction in tight rooms while compromising what you want to do. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, for, for me, for me, it's when it gets really tight, you go, you work the crowd work tool. Right. So it's worth building the crowd work tool. Right. And that usually works because it's like, oh, people are like, oh, shit, we better pay attention. Yeah. And then no, all of a sudden they're laughing and you're like, well, that was easy. Right. And uh, you just need you just need like stimulation. Yeah. Right. Um, they just don't you just don't want to listen. But you want some so you want stakes. It adds some stakes. Yeah. The crowd work. Um, so the crowd work is a good tool. Um, and then the hardest one for me is I would say that's a good tool is like big energy. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, the, the tool that I'd like to build over the next year and commit to is, um, actually building more act outs. Oh yeah. Because I can't, I can't, I can't get loud and in people's faces, but I can, I could physically do act outs more. Yeah. That's a, that's interesting. I, I think it's good for everybody to like experiment with different, uh, styles and techniques just to, f- because you might stumble upon something that works perfectly for you, even yeah. though a lot of it, you know, you're, you're not going to keep up. Probably. And I watched, I feel like we've seen Bill Burr develop great act outs like an athlete developing a, a three point shot later in his career. Yeah. He, he, it was something like two or three specials ago. He started doing some like, okay, act outs. And mm-hmm. then the special after that, he was just doing perfect act outs. Like the one with the helicopter act out. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The one with the helicopter, it was like he had spent two years perfecting the act out, and then he was just dominating. Yeah, I always think of him throwing catch, playing catch with his his imaginary son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's was like that's like an early act out. Yeah, uh, from several years. And if you ago. go to his, but yeah, if you go to his first special, there's almost almost no act out. Right. So, do you have ultimately an idea? Do you is Brian Regan like your ultimate goal to be like? Um, in terms of like, you know, he tours theaters, which is kind of a, a lot of comics, you know, dream to just tour theaters that people come out to see you, you, you can be fully yourself and you, you don't really have to do anything else. Yeah. I think Regan, Mulaney, Hannibal, 
Mark Marin, mm-hmm. um, Patton Oswalt. Uh, but for me, yeah, for me, I want the the goal would be to do like a a great, interesting hour of comedy that people come out to see. Mm-hmm. But then also to uh, maybe have one other thing like being creating a, a, and developing a show. Well, as you were writing that pilot, did you feel like? Oh, this is just just as satisfying. Could be just as satisfying as stand up. Mm, not quite. It's very different because yeah. you get no feedback. <laughs> you get no feedback yeah. as you're writing it, and um, it's kind of impossible to compare anything to like what it's like. So it's it's very different. But I would say in the creative stage, in the in the creative stage of it, it is equally satisfying to write yeah. a stand up bit. It may be even more satisfying to write uh, a fictional narrative yeah. in the creative stage. The problem is the creative stage is about 1% of writing a pilot. Yeah. It's mostly revisions and then notes and then <laughs> revisions and notes. Yeah. And then politics and actors and it. So, but in that 1% creative phase, it is equally satisfying. Yeah. And I think you've, you've only gone through maybe 1% of the terrible parts of it that will come yeah. if you get to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've done quite a bit of revising and editing to the point where I'm like, yeah, this, well, I, I see how this could suck. You didn't get to the point where they're picking actors that you don't think are good so, for it and they're changing what so, you yeah, want. I think once I get to that point, I'll just, I'll have to be so Zen or I'll just be like, oh, this is, yeah, I'm immediately quitting. Would you want to be in it? No, I just want to be the, a writer creator. That's cool. And, um, I ideally create it and then sort of let other people handle the politics of it. It's tough though to, it's a hard road to be a touring headliner without being on TV. You know, if you're only, going to be on like the tonight show like once a year or or something like that do do you know what i mean like to just to keep the fan base growing whereas like if you made if you made a sitcom and then you were in the sitcom or whatever type of show they want to make then you would become famous yeah i think well well so i think pete i think pete holmes has a pretty ideal career actually he not that i want to be like pete holmes but he has a successful podcast he has a successful well actually i think it I think it's the final season, but he had it. He has had a somewhat successful TV show. Yeah, I show, think that was a successful TV crashing. show. Crashing. He made three tours, seasons. And then he tours and does his new hour. Yeah. Um, with he, also fans, had a, he also had a talk show. With fans that come out. So he's got those three areas. Yeah. To me, that's a, that would be a satisfying career. But he put he's the star of his show, though. Yeah, I, I don't need to be the star of the show. Yeah. I just want to be the behind the scenes. It's true. It's interesting. I... I don't need attention that much, which is why I'm interested in writing more. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, I feel that way also. And that's kind of part of like why I've done less stand-up and more producing shows because that was never like a driving part of doing stand-up. Yeah. I wasn't, I'm not like, I I need some. Same with me. I don't need it at all. Yeah. And I I almost prefer for people not to pay attention to me. I know. But. I would say, yeah, I would say about half the year I spend like feeling introverted, like, uh, I don't, I don't know if I need to perform. Mm -hmm. And then the other half of the year I'm more extroverted. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. But yeah, but then when I do it, it's exciting. It is fun. But it's funny though, like trying to, uh, like get your energy up, like trying to have big energy. (laughs) Whenever I host, I started doing all crowd work and it's hard when the crowd is tight to like get them going off of crowd work because they they don't even know what they're going to experience and then when I start asking them questions sometimes they're like what is is this a comedy show are we even and so what I I do is I go in the back hallway and I run up and down a bunch of times oh nice yeah and I just get I get myself fired up so that when I go on stage I'm like I have big energy and then I come out and then I'm just like fuck you fuck (laughs) you fuck you and then the people love it when you say fuck you to them for yeah. some reason, as long as you're smiling when you say it yeah, and uh, they'll get going. It's like you're their brother. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to be. Well, dude, on that story about me, I Hell think, yeah. uh, I think we've done a great this job. This is great. We covered polyamory comedy and, uh, 
and uh, how to host how to host a show. how to host a how to host a stand-up show well dude good luck do you want to promote your social media oh i'd love to mention my podcast a great listening experience i'd love to mention my album innocence and i'd love to mention I'm putting my energy, yeah, I'm putting my silly videos on Instagram, at Joe Zimmerman. And my noon tweets, at Joe Zimmerman. Yeah, and your your uh, stand-up is perfect for Instagram. Because yeah. it's great jokes. Thank and, you. And uh, that's, that's really what you want uh, for those Instagram stand-up sets, I think. Heck yeah. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.